0: So walking across the back wall right now is our kids pastor, Millie Womstead. mortified probably that I would call attention to her. She's leaving the room. Uh, But Millie's been serving our kids for a long time. And her time here at Trinity in terms of being a staff member is coming to an end actually in a couple of short weeks. And I just want to say to you all that uh, we're in a a really strange time, I think, just generally in the wider culture. Um, Many of us in this room come to a space like this feeling, you know, just like your margins are as tight as they've ever been. We feel less inclination and instinct to volunteer in certain spaces, and we're certainly with you in that. It's been just a remarkable couple of years, and a lot of us feel pretty threadbare. Millie has uh, led our kids' ministry with so much um, grace and uh, courage and love and pastoral heart over the last seven years or so, and we are so thankful for her. We also bless her as she is going to get a much needed rest from some of these labors as she discerns what God has next for her. I just want to say that if you or someone, you know, has a heart for kids, we are hiring a full-time kids pastor. And right now that job is wide open. And I would just say to you, um, if you have a passion for kids and for families uh, to see the kind of formation happen that we're alluding to in a space like this, I just want to encourage you to um, pray about whether or not this would be a job for you to step into, or if you know someone in that space who you think um, that person could could do this work in joining a great team here at Trinity. We just want to encourage you to visit our website, apply for the job, or grab one of us at the end of church. Um, we'd love to we'd love to talk to you about it. Um, connected to that, we we are asking for for volunteers down in kids ministry. Uh, the last couple of years, we have a, a number of very faithful volunteers that are probably over maxed because they are stepping in beyond the call of duty, um, and it, we're to a point right now to where if We don't see a kind of uptick in our kids volunteerism. We're going to have to scale some things back over the summertime just to acknowledge the reality of the moment that we're in. Um, My heart in this for us is that many hands can make light work, that there's a sense in which if we step in together, there's a way to take care of and love our kids. And y'all, it feels sometimes like a just like chaotic job you would do and sort of like take one for the team, but it doesn't need to feel that way. Our kids are a gift. Um, and I just want to encourage you to think about whether or not the Lord would ask you to step into a space of some volunteerism. If enough of us are committed and consistent, then none of us wear, wear out in this process. And so if that's you, um, grab a kid's pastor after church or one of us, and we can start the process because we believe that, um, you know, as the poet said, the children are our future, uh, teach them well and let them lead the way. Um, That was a joke. Just laugh a little bit. It's Easter, people. Come on. Uh, I want to make an, an important mention before we get into the Bible. If you have your, uh, your your Bible today, turn to Acts chapter 9. And while you do, I just want to say that we are beginning on the 29th. So the last Sunday that we'll have our evening service for the summer will be May 22nd. Um, we're going to be taking a break from our evening service during the summer months. Uh, there are a number of reasons for this. Number one, we've been um, wondering about this for a long time. Trinity started as an evening service 20 years ago. Some of you were like... There are a few that I can look out and that remember that was all we had. Um, We've seen the energy around our evening service in terms of participation diminish over the years as we've become more of a morning culture. Um, So that's a reason we've been wondering, is God got something new for that space? Uh, So we're going to take the summer to discern. And part of discerning is um, a cessation of activity. We are uh, working to rehire and repopulate a number of staff members. So we're stretched really thin. And this is a way for us to acknowledge some of our limits. But it's more than that. It's actually a curiosity about whether or not there may be some future space for us. But before we get to like thinking about how spaces could be leveraged, I think we have to just cease and rest. And so if you typically go to the night service and you're here today, um, I would just encourage you to plug into the morning for the next few months as we discern together what God has for that space. And a big part of that, I think, is acknowledging that there are times where you just have to step back and do a little bit of cessation to then wonder about what God has next. We have a lot of hope for what the Lord is doing, and yet a part of what he's doing right now is, is inviting all of us, and maybe some of us on staff, just to acknowledge some of our own limitations and say, we're going we're gonna to take a break and see what God's up to. So join us in praying about that. Um, so it's going to feel a little weird for me. I've been doing night church for 20 years, um, and yet uh, we're going to take a break and see what God's got for us. If you have your Bibles, turned to Acts 9. We're going to read then pray and then jump in, see what we can see. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and then let's try to hear and see what the Lord would invite us to hear and see through the scripture today. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you, Jesus, for your arresting of Saul, for your catalytic work in his life that would change him from being one kind of person to being a different kind of person. We pray today that we would marvel at that event, which resulted in Saul becoming Paul and resulted in Gentiles, many of us in this room being included in the story of the early church through our brother Paul. But I also pray, God, that we would have the eyes to see how this same process might unfold in our own lives. Give us an openness, Lord, to recognizing your work. Even when it feels confusing, as it must have to Saul, or fear-inducing, even, as it must have to Saul. Help us to see crisis in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So one of the things that I love the most about the Bible is that when we encounter a story like this, we're invited to look back at the story and think really true thoughts about the story. Like this is a really important story in the Bible. This is a story about a man who was going down a road that God arrested him. He changed him and then he became a different kind of human being. So that's really important for us. That's like historical fact. That is a foundational truth. And yet, We also are invited to find our own story within this story. That's the beauty of biblical authority. Biblical authority is able to, like a diamond, it shines in so many different directions. And so today, I hope that we'll be able to think about Saul becoming Paul, but we'll also be able to think about where the Lord may be wanting to work in a similar way, a smaller but similar way in our own lives. So we're going to walk through the, the story. The first thing we see here is that Saul is headed down the wrong road. He is um, going to Damascus, which for him technically is the right road. He wanted to go to Damascus, but his life was going down a road that was not pleasing to God, and Saul did not know that. He was the last guy to be aware. We're told in the Bible that Saul is uh, a Pharisee, that he is zealous, that he loves God, he loves the traditions of the Jews, and he believes that he is protecting something really important. And yet, in that vein, he is breathing out murderous threats against Christians. And so he's headed to Damascus with letters to go to the synagogue and find out the Christians who were there worshiping in the synagogue. Because in the early church, the Jews were uh, going to synagogue faithfully. Uh, They were there. They were worshiping within the Jewish community and Saul wanted to find them and bind them and take them back to Jerusalem to bring them up on charges of heresy. Saul is headed down the wrong road. He doesn't know it. And I've been thinking about that in our own lives. Oftentimes, we are late to discover when we are going down the wrong road. Saul thinks he's doing right, but it turns out he is actually moving contrary to the heart and the work and the will of God. He's doing something that's off track. He's sinning. Sinning in the New Testament means to miss the mark. He is is missing the mark. And he's not even aware that he's missing the mark. But what's happening in his life is there's a level of disorder and disorientation. And this leads me to the second thing that I think we're meant to think about. Your life trajectory matters a great deal. Trajectory and momentum matter for good and for evil. And one of the things that I think Saul invites us to see is that our lives actually count for something, that Saul's life was moving in a direction and God wanted to stop that direction. And I believe that many of us, as we walk through our lives, sometimes forget that our lives really matter, that your life is of tremendous consequence, that you have actually the power for good or for evil. And what Paul teaches us, or Saul rather, in this story is that his life was going in a direction and that actually mattered. God cared about that. And as you live your life, your life, your trajectory, your direction, it matters to God. We are people of consequence. But one of the challenges that we run into as we live our lives is that we're sometimes tempted to just put our heads down and just grind on and get through life. And in that process, we forget that our direction matters, that God cares about the direction of your life. And this is why I believe it's really important for us to occasionally step back and stop our activity and evaluate the direction of our life. What kind of person are you becoming? Dallas Willard, one of my favorite Christian thinkers, says everyone is becoming a certain kind of person, and that ultimately we are exactly the kinds of people who do the things that we do. Your life matters. The direction of your life matters, and every single one of us in this room, we have a direction. We are headed somewhere. Saul was headed in a direction that was not going to bring life and shalom to him, nor to the people around him. And God cared about that. We have actually this opportunity as humans, as image bearers, as children of God, people made in the image of God to consider the direction and the trajectory of our lives. And so I would just simply ask you, where are you headed? Saul was headed down the wrong road. And there are times in life where I think we have to stop and step back and ask the question, where's my momentum taking me? Your momentum, the momentum of your life is a really powerful thing. And what happens so often when we don't examine our direction, and a big part of examining our direction is actually examining the things that inform our direction. Jason, um, who prayed such a beautiful prayer over his daughter today as our pastoral care leader in this church, is helping many of us in this church name our stories, walk through and understand and own our own stories. Where you come from has so much to say about where you're headed. And if we don't stop and, and notice If we don't stop and slow down enough to notice, we actually sometimes then don't account for the trajectory and the momentum of our lives until we're so far down a road, so ingrained in habits and patterns that we just don't know how we can do anything about it. Your life matters. Even if you don't believe it, your life is of consequence. There's power there. What we see in Saul is also true in us. Your momentum, your trajectory really matter a great deal before God. So Saul is moving in a direction. And what happens in Saul's life is what I think also happens in our lives. A crisis comes to arrest him. And in that crisis, Saul actually is invited to see some things. And that leads me to the next thing I want to say to you. A crisis, when it comes into your life, always presents us with an opportunity for renewal. But here's the challenge that all of us face. We do our very best to avoid crisis because crisis is terrifying. Like in Paul, Paul's case, um, a, a blinding light, losing his eyesight, um, that would be a disorienting and terrifying thing to experience. And in your own life, we run into um, our own crises, right? And because we are typically pain, confusion, and conflict avoidant, we do everything we can to back up from crises. I believe one of the gifts of God in a text like this is that we're invited to reframe our own understanding of crisis to see crisis as an invitation for healing and renewal. Rather than running away from it, can I see what God might be wanting to do in the middle of a crisis, even a crisis that I would not have chosen in my life? Saul experiences crisis. Something happens to him that is bigger than him. And in that crisis, he is made aware in an acute way, in a a clear way that he's not in control of his life. And y'all, I just want to say to you, you're not ultimately, fundamentally in control of your lives. You're just not. We live sometimes under this illusion that we are until something happens, until somebody gets sick, till a relationship is broken, till a crisis happens internally in a relationship or in our jobs or in the world. And then we're reminded of that which has always been true, which is that we're not in control. You can believe that you're in control when things are going well. But what crisis does sometimes is crisis comes into our lives in, in a way where we're invited to stop. And many of us, have such a momentum about life. We're just barreling down a road without stopping to think about it. And when crisis comes, it's always an invitation to cease, to slow down, and to see that crisis is an opportunity for you to experience renewal. I believe that the Lord wants to help us reframe where the invitation is in the crises that come to bear in our own life. Can you see the things that you would otherwise want to avoid as a potential doorway into something that could change you and make you into a different kind of person? I believe the Lord wants to give us a redemptive framework for how to deal with the stimulus of life, especially when things get to crisis boiling points. This requires a new imagination for how God might enter into the painful places of life. Can we see the invitation? I believe that if we can, if we will, there's an opportunity for us to be met by God in brand new ways. What I've experienced in my own life is that when I am invited to slow down in the middle of something that's a a, a catalytic or a, a crisis-oriented event in my life that I have an opportunity for the Lord to hem me in and move me from one room from one way of living and being into a different room into a different place a different way of living so maybe today you find that you're bumping up against the boundaries. You're, you're hitting the walls. Maybe you feel a little bit out of control or you feel like some relationships or some ways of understanding your own story are starting to feel more painful than they were. Rather than ignore that or rather than try to get your hands on it and fix it, what if we saw this as an opportunity to say, God, you're moving me forward and maybe you want to move me to a new space. You want to make me into a different kind of person. Apart from this crisis, Saul stays Saul. Apart from this arresting moment, Saul stays the guy that's just barreling down a certain road, the wrong road. In this crisis, there was an opportunity for him to become a different kind of human being, a different kind of person. I stand before you today as a person who now... Would not trade the cataclysm of my own life over the last year for anything in the world. Stepped away from this church for four months. Felt at times like I couldn't imagine that there would be any way for me to come back. I felt so burned out and hollowed out and worked over that I was like, I don't even know if there's a way for me to feel like I'm, I'm fully human again. It was a, a visceral experience. And yet in that crisis, the stopping... And the wondering and the wrestling actually moved me and my own soul from one room to another room, metaphorically speaking, actually gave me an opportunity to experience the presence of God in a way that otherwise, if I had just been nose to the grindstone, I would not have experienced. Where are you needing to welcome all that God could bring in the middle of the crisis that you would not have chosen? Do you understand that so much of this is about stopping and acknowledging reality? That so often when we don't, when we avoid, when we work around, when we get in our own energy, we miss so much. We lose maybe some of the gifts that God would want to give us if we're actually tending to reality. And here's where I think the Lord really begins to work. In crisis, we experience questions. It's interesting, there are two questions asked in this text. First, God asks a question, and then Saul asks a question. And I just wanna say, if you think you're the one asking the first question, you're just missing something. God's always asking the first question in crisis, always, always, always. Um, We think sometimes that we're the one asking questions first. It's not ever us first, it's always God first. And in this moment here, this time of questioning, this time of crisis, Jesus actually asked a question of Saul. He's like, why are you hurting me? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul, rather than in that moment doubling down, he's being undone by crisis. What does Saul say? Lord, who are you? The fundamental question that we're all meant to ask when we enter into seasons of crisis is, Lord, show me who you are. God, help me to see something that I cannot currently see. Saul's answer is a really odd answer. He gives primacy. He says, Lord, so he knows someone God-like is doing something to me, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, who are you? What am I missing? When was the last time that you looked at God and said, what am I missing? What am I not seeing? What do I not understand? What am I not holding as I just barrel down the trajectory of my life? As I just go down that road? Jesus asks why questions. And that question is right. It's a a question designed to stop Saul. It's a question designed to um, invite Saul to cease and begin to reflect on why am I doing the things that I am doing? Why am I moving down the road that I'm moving down. He could have just said, Saul, Saul, stop it or else. But he doesn't. In some ways, it would just be easier if God were meaner, you know? If God berated you like your parents did. I was just actually listening to a We can't apply this to Jesus, so I'm probably going into some troubling waters. I was just listening to a marriage podcast this week that just said, never ask why questions because why questions put people on the defensive. And here's Jesus, you know, he's, why are you doing this? Uh, I guess Jesus gets to say to us, why are you doing the things you're doing? And I want you to hear that rather than a shame there, he is inviting Saul to actually name and own what's going on in his life. I practice the examine every day because I wanna practice answering and asking questions in the normal before all hell breaks loose. Sorry, kids. It's just a saying. (laughs) You live long enough, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Because what happens so often is we don't ask the question, and then we get into a super critical moment, and then we start trying to ask the question. Now, if you're in that space, there's no time like the present to try to hear and answer questions from God, to ask and receive. But it's better if we can start to listen every day so that when we get to these critical moments, we're able to go, okay, this is a time for question. You are in a time for questions. God is saying, do you know why you're going down the road you're going down? And he wants you to say, tell me more about who you are. Crisis is a time for question. We've got to get good at, better at, more comfortable with questions. And then the story moves to Saul learning to wait. And this is, I, I really, this is, I, this is not my favorite. I, I really wish that Jesus had been made material and he had healed Saul and he had given him new marching orders. But he tells him to go to Jerusalem and be led by his friends. By the way, his friends who were into the same sketchy stuff he was into. I mean, they were all like going to do the same thing together. And now these bewildered friends are like, I guess we take the blind guy into town and we just sit around for a few days. I mean, they're in a strange and uncomfortable place. And Saul goes from proactive, go for it, to sit and wait without vision and clarity. And in that waiting, something happens. And I believe that for most all of us in this room, there is a sense in which, go ahead and put that last one up. It's time for us to learn how to wait. Oh, maybe I didn't give the last slide. Imagine a last slide that says, wait for healing and movement. Five, I'm the worst when it comes to administration. Sometimes I think a thing, but I don't actually say it. So the last thing here is that there are times especially in crisis where you are going to be called to wait for healing and for what God has next. If we rush into what God has next, we end up getting out in front of good plans. The Lord wants you and me to learn how to wait. And I just think about Saul Three days of blindness, three days of a lack of clarity. Maybe today you're in a place where you think things used to feel clear to me. They don't feel clear right now. I used to have a plan. I don't feel like I have a plan right now. Maybe you're in that space. If you are, you're in really good company. What the Lord wants us to do when we're in those spaces of lacking clarity is to wait like Saul waited for what he's going to show us next. Here's the question I want us to hold. We're gonna spend just a few moments in some silence before we come to the communion table. And this is increasingly becoming a part of our rhythm here at the church. It's an opportunity to go from information, 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 to then more activity, to put a rest, a stop, a pause, and hold a question. My hope for us is that we will hold this question and then carry it into our week. Where is God asking you to wait even as you hope for renewal? And I just want to say very clearly, waiting in fatalism, waiting in self-pity, waiting in anger, that's different than holding deferral while we hope for God's redemptive plan. I know precisely where God's asking me to wait with hope. I want you also to know precisely where he's asking you to hope. One of the things that I think the Lord wants to challenge us with here is to go from really vague notions to more specific notions of where the invitation is. Sometimes we miss, I believe, invitations from God because we're really vague. We just, oh, he's just asking me to wait for more peace. Where, where does it hurt? Where do you get out of whack? Where do you tend to get ahead of God? I know where that is for me right now. It's very specific. I want you to get as specific as you can. So we're going to spend about three minutes in silence. We're going to hold this question. And then we're going to come to communion together. Let's let's be still. Let's ask the question together. we're able to stand together.